Welcome back to the Oscar Project Podcast, the show where I discuss Oscar-nominated films year by year. I'm your host, Jonathan Eterberg, and today I'm bringing you an author interview with Nate Patron, author of the forthcoming book, The Needle and the Lens, Pop Goes to the Movies from Rock and Roll to Synthwave. Before I jump into the interview, please subscribe to the show in your podcast player so you can get all the newest episodes as soon as they are released. If you like the interview and want to hear more, please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and make sure to check out my other movie content at theoscarproject.substack.com. Nate Patron is a freelance writer based in St. Paul, Minnesota. He has covered nearly every imaginable genre of music for outlets including Bandcamp, Stereo Gum, Pitchfork, The Vinyl Factory, and Red Bull Music Academy. His first book, Bring That Beat Back, How Sampling Built Hip Hop, was published in 2020, and he joins me today to talk about his new book, The Needle and the Lens, Pop Goes to the Movies from Rock and Roll to Synthwave. Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start off with where you got the idea for this book. Did you come at it from the music side or from the film side first? That's a pretty interesting question to start off with because I'm not really sure. And I'm not sure because it's the kind of topic I've been thinking about for a long time, like long before I ever considered even writing a book about it. I was a teenager in the 90s, and that was kind of a golden era for soundtracks as a way to discover music. Like I and a lot of other people my age saw Pulp Fiction went out to get the soundtrack and wound up with these glimpses into this world of music that you know, probably predated most of us, but still seemed kind of cool by association. You know, whether you're talking about like, you know, Cool and the Gang or Dick Dale or, you know, the likes of them. And I think that uh, Martin Scorsese's Casino and then Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights a couple years later were, you know, for me, the three films I remember having the most impact on my you know teenage psyche as to this, sort of symbiotic relationship between cinematic storytelling and the way it uses pop music to kind of accent or uh, kind of comment on the story itself. So it's, it's yeah, it's lingered in my brain for, uh, for a few decades now, yeah. Sure, and, and I thought it was interesting to that point, you note in the book that a lot of the films had the song informing the film, but then the film also gave the song a little bit of a resurgence, especially if it was you know a little bit of an older song that was being used. What is it about that interplay that works so well between these songs and the films that they're in? There's a lot of possibility there. And I think there's some deep impulse in a lot of people to try and connect the dots with you know, their own cultural tastes and interests. Like, oh, if I like this thing, I'll like this other thing. And then when someone like a filmmaker or, or you know, encourages this to happen in an unexpected or even just a really effectively memorable way, you can feel these connections kind of forming in real time as you experience it as a viewer and you get this sort of like little emotional buzz from the juxtaposition. You may go into a movie not knowing about a piece of music or the artists who made it, but if you click on a film's wavelength for a couple acts and then that film makes a very specific piece of music a part of this whole world, this mise-en-scene that you're immersed in, then yeah, it can feel like a revelation or if you're already familiar with the song like i was with uh, many of the selections in this book you know maybe even overly familiar it can give you a new angle to approach it and appreciate it sure makes sense and, and one thing i appreciated about the book was the the wide variety of both films and music i think you had something from just about every genre genre of both films and music um, so that said, do you think there are any specific types of movies or specific song, types of songs that work better as needle drops that, like you use in the book? 
I mean, there are, I suppose it depends on the associations between the two that have formed in ways that almost feel like tropes. Like, for instance, oh, you think of film noir and you're, you know, a lot of people's brains immediately go to jazz, you know, whether it's, you know, from the 30s and the big band sound to, you know, the bebop and post-bop of the 50s, depending on the time frame. Um, Inversely, it's kind of fun to see uh, kind of styles and genres that might be a bit incongruent but still work anyways like how you know uh, master of the flying guillotine which is a you know late 70s shaw brothers kind of fantastical martial arts epic uh, also uses like is very heavy on using these kind of like you know german art rock and uh, ambient and uh sort of psychedelic groups like you know like noi <laughs> and kind of introduces that sort of supposedly incongruous yet extremely effective kind of kind of partnership there i mean it's uh it's a good way to kind of um help you know the audience feel like these movies actually speak on a wavelength whether they expect it or not Uh, but i think for the most part it is largely just contextual and connected to the filmmaker's vision do they want to make the audience feel comfortable and immerse them in a familiar, credible world they can relate to and recognize? Or do they want to mess with their expectations and add a bit of unpredictability to a story in a world that they might not have considered? Uh, I think, uh, I guess for me, like to just use one example, I guess it's the difference between putting a bunch of classic 70s hits on the soundtrack of a period piece like Dazed and Confused and doing the same for like Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, They both, yeah, they both work really well for what they're intended to do. Makes sense. Makes sense. I I was also interested to me how varied the timing was between when the songs were released and when they were used in the various films that you talked about in the book. Sometimes it was a a brand new song that was, you know, just a few months or a year old when it was dropped into a film. But other times, you know, you just mentioned Dazed and Confused with all the 70s pieces. Um, So how, how do you think this choice affects how the songs fit into the films? I mean, it can be fairly simple. I mean, there's usually two cases that this sort of scenario typically describes that seem pretty cut and dry, whether it's, oh, it's a contemporary film for a contemporary audience, and you want to capture a contemporary moment, like the countercultural rock and Easy Rider, or it's, you know, like a, like a Dazed and Confused or American Graffiti. It's a period piece that tries right. to evocatively recreate an earlier point in history that seems, you know, recognizable to people who were there and evocative for people who weren't. Uh, that seems simple enough, but I think the cases where you get a bit more outside of that are what interests me, especially when it's a way that really feels kind of personal in relation to the director's vision. Um, one of the films I wrote about Killer of Sheep, a, uh, an independent film from the, from the seventies, it's one of my favorite examples because its soundtrack speaks to a kind of intergenerational, almost familial bond with music that these characters have. And the film seems to care less about where these old songs fit in this point of time and more about how much weight a piece of music can hold when people like the characters in the film have lived with it for so long. I mean, this is a film that was shot and takes place in the 1970s, but there's only one real recognizably, you know, song that we would consider of the 70s in that film, uh, Earth, Wind & Fire's Reasons. And the character who is listening to it and singing along to it is a little girl. And most of the rest of the soundtrack comes from the 50s and 60s, which is the kind of music that the film's protagonist, who is in his early 30s, uh, likely remembers from a childhood that continues to haunt him. And that's that's like how you get that sort of 
important element of, of you know, specificity and, uh, and uh, you know, personal touches in a, in a film like that in that way. Right. And I was also interested in your chapter on Blue Velvet and Roy Orbison's song In Dreams, you kind of asked the question, what happens when somebody with their own particular vision finds something in an artist's work that the artist doesn't necessarily recognize? And you put that in the context of Orbison not really liking the use of his song in the movie initially, but eventually came around to it. Do you think uh, the artists, whether they be the musicians or the filmmakers, lose some ownership of these art forms once they're released to the public and others can interpret them in their own way? Well, I think that's been a part of life for creative people for a long time, you know, no matter the context. And I think at a certain point, maybe somebody you know, who is in the situation has to just stop and think, well, Charles Manson claims the Beatles inspired him to do what he did. So maybe <laughs> this isn't so bad by comparison. Um, right. I mean, it's got to be a real puzzling existential crisis sometimes for some people, especially, you know, like Orbison is a pretty interesting example because by many accounts, he's a pretty self-conscious person as a performer and an artist. Uh, so it definitely helps if it jumpstarts or revives someone's career like it did for Orbison. Or another example, um, like how The Exorcist took Tubular Bells, which is a really niche appeal prog rock suite by Mike Oldfield, and basically got him and Virgin Records and Richard Branson all set for life because that one little piece of music that William Friedkin used became one of the most characteristic elements of an extremely popular and indelibly memorable film. So it serves as a good reminder that sometimes artists can be surprised by their own work in a sort of illuminating and positive way, too. And I think uh, one of my favorite anecdotes, uh, one that I sadly didn't have enough room for in the book, was about how Paul Thomas Anderson was trying to get Jeff Lynne from Electric Light Orchestra to be okay with his song Livin' Thing being used as the end credits music for Boogie Nights. I mean, it's, this is the song that plays immediately after we finally see what Dirk Diggler's been packing all this time. And Lynn was skeptical because he supposedly doesn't really like sex and violence in film. And, you know, Anderson set up a screening. And so Lynn sits through this movie with a lot of sex and some pretty intense violence in it. And then at the very end, when that opening violent living thing drops, PTA and his soundtrack composer, Michael Penn, watch as Lynn just throws up his arms in the air in like this triumphant moment of amazement. So that, yeah, that, that can really be... Uh, it, it can really just uh, put things into amazing new context for the creators themselves. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes they, they never even imagined it that way, but when they see the, the juxtaposition, it makes sense. Exactly. Um, now, many of the needle drops in the book are non-diegetic, but a few like Bohemian Rhapsody in Wayne's World are a part of the world of that movie. How does being a diegetic song affect our perception of a needle drop in the film? I guess it depends on how much you identify with the characters or the situation. I think non-diegetic music can sort of comment on the situation or let slip something to the audience that the characters may not necessarily know or be experiencing. And diegetic music typically has the implication that these characters and the situation that they're in is natural, where things are happening like they do in the real world, and they you know, actually like pick out a song to listen to or they react to one that someone or something else is playing and there's potential for character building at work in that dynamic. So yeah, with Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a, it's a good excuse to just watch these guys enact that silly little ritual in their car right. as a way of getting to know what kind of lovable burnouts they are. Um, 
But I also like the trick that some films pull, like um, like Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, where you think you're listening to a uh, non-diegetic piece of music over an early establishing shot. There's just a, you know, kind of like a this big establishing shot of a neighborhood, and you hear Mott the Hoople's song all the way from Memphis, but then it almost seamlessly transitions into the scene that reveals that it's actually diegetic and Alice is yelling at her son to turn down that mop the hoopla record because she's getting sick of it. You know, it seems kind of simple, but it's a great trick. For sure. Now you mentioned uh, a minute ago, some things that you weren't able to get in the book. Uh, Were there any other uh, films or songs or combinations that you really wanted to try and get in? I know you had a a list of additional uh, 24 at the end uh, that didn't quite make the cut for a full coverage. Anything else that you didn't make, didn't make the cut for the book. I mean, I did kind of feel a bit odd about sort of like not dedicating a chapter specifically to a Tobin Martin Scorsese film because he's like basically the patron saint of this thing to me. <laughs> right. But, uh, I mean, it really is kind of like the, uh, the tip of the iceberg. I think that, you know, there's, this is just the kind of topic you could really expand into a lot of different media too, because now that television and even video games have come to a similar point where they can create associations like this too. Uh, there's all sorts of other potential ways to examine this cross-media relationship and how these kind of associations associations uh, can develop depending on you know what the media even is. Great. And now you had an extensive bibliography at the end of the book. Um, there's no possible way I'm going to be able to get the you know through all of those different ver- books and, and articles and things. But was there anything specific that figured into your research as you were putting the book together? I mean, I do tend to bounce around from source to source depending on the subject, and I cover a lot of different you know, pieces of far-flung turf, uh, though it is kind of funny to see how many times I want up going back to certain ones. Like, Janet Maslin had a pretty good run of saying things, uh, interesting things about the movies I tended to pick, for one. Um, there are a couple of, uh, you know, standard go-tos. I mean, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls was kind of a gimme, consider I discussed Easy Rider and Apocalypse Now, and I also just have a uh, and, and American Graffiti, and I have a long-standing fascination with that era of film. But I think the books that really helped me the most were just the ones that collected essays and interviews with you know, the specific directors and artists, you know, Scorsese, David Lynch, Charles Burnett, uh, you know, the ones that gave me some direct from the source context to work with and elaborate on. Okay. Um, so this might be the hardest question. You've obviously watched a lot of films in your career and in your research for the book, but if you had to pick your top three, what would they be? I mean, I can never settle on a definitive all-time favorite anything because I always feel like I have different go-tos and favorites for different moods and mind frames and points in my life. So narrowing this kind of thing down is always tricky for me. But I think for this question, I kind of want to focus on, like, I think as far as films that I've loved the longest, you know, which are ones that I saw as a kid and I keep going back to and finding new things in 30 or 40 years later. Um... And these are not necessarily children's movies at all. Uh, I have to say, like, Repo Man, which I first saw on TV when I was like 11 or 12. And this is like, you know, the TV version has some pretty notorious uh, creative dubbing uh, to uh, take care of the whole profanity aspect. Like, this is, you know, the clean dub where people call each other melon farmer. But it still (laughs) left this incredible impression on me as to what the strange sort of countercultural... Uh, you know, punk rock underbelly of the Reagan 80s actually felt like. Um, another one 
you know, from the eighties raising Arizona, which was the first time I really noticed that live action cinematography could be funny. And, you know, along with all the amazing one-liners and the whole lovable loser vibe of it all, it's, it's really an amazing, you know, kind of post new Hollywood version of a screwball comedy. And of course I'm a Minnesotan. So between the Coen's first great comedy, Prince's sign of the times and the twins winning the world series, it made 1987 feel like a pretty special year for me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, man, like, I live in Minneapolis and I'm 10 years old and all this is happening. Oh, wow. And then to round it out, I got to put Pee Wee's Big Adventure in there. You know, this comedian I like, Julie Klausner, pretty much nailed it when she said that it would basically beat Hairspray by a few years when it came to figuring out the PG version of the John Waters kind of camp surrealist take on pop culture. Right. That's one of the right. movies that feels like, oh, a bunch of, you know, wacky jokes and funny voices when you're a little kid and then i go back to you know see and it's just like wow this is like a really phantasmagorical version of you know the effect that like 1950s americana had on the on the psyche of a very particular sort of countercultural sensibility it's just like really wild stuff yeah that's one that certainly takes on a different uh different view when you watch watch it as an adult as compared with a kid mm-hmm now, if you could invite any three movie characters to your next dinner party, who would they be and why would you invite them? Ooh, sheesh. I am pretty good at going to parties, but I am definitely not the type of person who could successfully coordinate one. So I'd probably, <laughs> I'd probably try to keep the guest list low maintenance because like, as much as I'd want to see what happened if Jeff Goldblum's character from Deep Cover met Robert Pattinson's from Good Time, I would absolutely not want to be there in person for it. So I haven't thought about it too much in that context. So maybe I'd theme it around seeing if I could invite the versions of the characters from films who undergo some incredibly intense life-changing events. But like the, the versions of them from before those events happened, just so I could see what they were like, you know, before the events of the movies themselves. Like, okay, you know, what was McCready from The Thing like before I went down to Antarctica? Uh, you know, who was Jackie Brown before, she, you know, she got older and a bit disillusioned with life. Uh, and, you know, maybe I'd throw in uh, Warren Oates character, GTO, from Monty Hellman's cult existential road movie, Two-Lane Blacktop, because he's this enigmatic kind of vaguely haunted guy who tells all these artificial backstories about them about himself to all the hitchhikers he picks up. And I'd really want to know what his whole deal really is. Or, you know, at least get him to tell another really fascinating series of lies about who he's, you know, wants people to think he is. Right, right. I like that approach. That's uh, that's a, a new one on me. Hmm. So do you have any books you could recommend that you've read recently? Could be nonfiction, fiction, and obviously don't necessarily have to be about movies. Oh, well, I've been starting to get back into fiction lately. Um, I, uh, I, I tend to kind of gravitate towards, you know, of nonfiction and essays and cultural studies, but I just finished Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This, which is one of the most intentiously, or in, in, one of the most intensely self-conscious and also deeply moving things I've ever read about the state of being extremely online and trying to perform as some version of yourself that would get you noticed on social media and how all that falls apart when you have to confront something in the real world that steers you away from it. Um, but I, yeah, I generally tend to gravitate towards, you know, more towards nonfiction. So I just got Will Hermes, Lou Reed, uh, biography that I'm eager to get started on, uh, along with Alex Pacbedemus' book, Quantum Criminals, uh, which is kind of like in a, like a, a cultural analysis of the, the, the music of Steely Dan. 
Uh, and I, I've got a lot of writer friends too. So there's a lot of stuff by my peers on my to read list, like just, you know, off the top of my head, like, uh, Stacy Easton wrote this book, uh, why Tammy Wynette matters that really goes in depth into, you know, this particular artist's sort of place in the world. And, you know, Mark Masters wrote a book, high bias. That is a, a kind of a fun in-depth examination into how, you know, the audio cassette kind of helped facilitate a, a whole bunch of different uh, scenes and subcultures in music. So, yeah, those are those are just like you know, the first few that come to mind. I got a lot more that could go. I could go on all day about stuff I've been reading, stuff I've been wanting to read. I got a huge backlog. It's ridiculous. Excellent. Well, I'll add those uh, to the show notes, and and folks can take a look at those if they're interested. And along mm-hmm. the same lines, um, any music that you've been listening to these days, um, since your your book does focus a, a substantial part on music? Yeah, I mean, my listening has never been all that consistent in, time, in terms of style or genre, but, you know, by inconsistent, it's at least not narrow. Like, one day I'll wake up thinking, I should go back and get caught up on all these, you know, 1970s Mahavishnu Orchestra albums. <laughs> and the next I'll be like, I really just want to listen to The Clash all day. And then on to 80s boogie funk or early 90s techno or what's currently happening in underground hip hop. It's not even one of those going through a phase type things where, you know, that brings to mind like the hipster stereotype. I'll, oh, this week I've discovered Ethiopian jazz. I'll make that my thing for a bit and then forget about it when it's not trendy anymore. I just grew up listening to all kinds of things. Just a really eclectic household and a really eclectic friend group and just the magic of college radio and I decided I didn't want to stop exploring. And if that means I'm spending a bit more time diving back into the past and keeping up with the latest, well, I mean, I'm 46 years old, so I get to just shrug and go, I'm old, when I don't feel like keeping up with the Joneses. And then I still wind up getting ambushed by new stuff and enjoying it anyways. It's kind of like I like to kind of just, you know, like fly by the seat of my pants when it comes to this kind of thing lately. That's great. That's That's really good. Um, and lastly, before I wrap up, uh, I know you've just finished this book and it's about to come out, but what projects do you have lined up next that you'd uh, want to talk about? I mean, that's still, a, that's still a bit up in the air and it's been kind of a tricky thing to figure out for me right now because the bottom seems to be dropping out from under the whole pop culture writing community on the internet. You know, all these sites and publications keep getting bought out and scrapped for parts and wind up narrowing the internet's pop culture conversation down to the kind of stuff that already plays to the things people already know and care about. I mean, I'm more interested in just focusing on whatever speaks to me, whether it's popular or kind of niche and esoteric. And when it feels like there aren't as many outlets as there used to be that'll let someone do that, it can kind of sort of be a drag on inspiration. But I'm still optimistic that I can figure something out. I mean, it's still pretty easy to get your writing out there if you're willing to put in the work to start a blog or a Substack, which... I mean, I keep meaning to get around to eventually, you know, three, four years running now, but <laughs> it's not that difficult to find a small, if loyal audience for it. It just has to be sustainable somehow. Definitely. Well, we look forward to whatever is next and uh, we'll keep our ears out for, for what you're working on. Thanks very much. It's it's kind of a uh, uh, journey that can be hard to anticipate, but you never know. Great. Well, thank you so much for the time today, Nate. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and for sharing the stories and the information in the book. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me on. It's Thank you again to my guest today, Nate Patron. His newest book, The Needle and the Lens, Pop Goes to the Movies from Rock and Roll to Synthwave, is out November 28th. And I'll have a link to where you can pick that up in the show notes 
along with links to the movies and books mentioned throughout the episode. The Oscar Project Podcast is written and produced by me, Jonathan Etrever, with editing assistance from Joshua Etrever. Please come back for my next episode, where I will be speaking with some special non-authors this time. I don't want to say who they are just yet, but you'll definitely want to tune in. Until then, I hope to see you at the movies. <laughs>